Hello everyone. My name is always Asma. Welcome to another episode of Two Ways to Skin a Cat, a show where we talk career experiences, entrepreneurship, and investments. The main aim is to show that there's more than one way to be successful other than just climbing the corporate ladder. We are live on LinkedIn and YouTube, and a show will be on available on podcast by tomorrow morning. If you're joining us live, please drop a one in the comments so that we know we're not talking to ourselves, and drop a two in the comments if you're watching the recording. My guest for this week is Fiona Martin, award-winning industrial psychologist, career coach, and thought leader in the field of talent management and career development. She's also an, uh, an entrepreneur, and I'd also like to add a radio and TV personality. Fiona, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's jump straight into questions. So uh, tell us your story. Maybe where do you come from outside of work? Who is Fiona Martin? Give us that backstory. I actually had someone ask me a similar question the other day. And, you know, I said, I shared a similar sentiment that I find it very difficult to describe myself out of, you know, outside the context of my, my profession, because in, you know, my identity and my profession, I sort of intertwined, uh, so to speak. So even the hobbies or the things I do for leisure are very much linked to career development. But uh in terms of my background, so I'm one of those people that, uh, you know, when I enrolled into uh, university, I, I just always felt at home, you know, studying uh, organizational psychology. Um, it wasn't something that I was exposed to or that I even knew what it was, you know, going into it. But I knew that I loved psychology, but at the same time, I, I wasn't really drawn to, you know, the clinical psychology, you know, the counseling psychology, etc. For me, it was more, I loved the workplace, I loved the, the corporate type of sector, and I guess uh, organizational psychology is almost the perfect intersection or the perfect marriage between psychology and, you know, solving problems within the workplace. Uh, after I graduated, I went uh, on to my first job. I, in fact, my first job was not even related to anything that I studied before. So especially for young people, I remind them of this because I know the pressures of graduating and getting into your dream job. But uh, I would say probably the first five, maybe five to six years uh, of my career, I, I was doing jobs that, that were okay, right? Uh, and after my first jobs, I was able to move more into like a human capital uh, sort of field. But, you know, I, the, the work didn't really set my heart on fire. You know, I enjoyed certain tasks. You know, I enjoyed, I, you know, I thrived in certain areas. You know, some I really was not engaged in. But for me, it really was a discovery because through that process and in the reflections that I had, I always kept coming back, you know, to the organizational psychology and asking myself, what exactly do I want to do? And those questions for me could only be answered by being exposed to the workplace. Because as a graduate, you've got the theory, you've got an idea of what you think the workplace is, and then you get into the workplace and it's nothing <laughs> like what you're prepared for. So those experiences for me were really valuable because they helped to shape me. In fact, I would almost say they were, it was a very reflective time because you know I would get into a job, I would enjoy it. Then sometimes find myself getting bored after a year or so. And I thought, is there something wrong with me? Why is it that? But I think because I wasn't really doing the things that fulfilled me, and it was through that reflection, uh, you know, that I thought, what, is, what are the problems that I love solving and where do I want to spend most of my time? Uh, so it's only actually about five years after I left university because I graduated, finished my honors, that I then enrolled into a master's. And so it's only about five years later that I only qualified about two years later. That's how long it took. I did it long distance. Um, so I guess I got into my dream role or my dream profession, so to speak, 
about seven or so years after my initial graduation. And yeah. I mean, the time, you know, those five to seven years for me were absolutely invaluable because they did help to shape me. And in fact, even the skills that I gained at jobs that I felt lukewarm about were very useful uh, because they ultimately were able to build me up for where I was going. So I don't think any of those opportunities were wasted opportunity. So it was a matter of actually what skills can I get while I'm in this place that can take me closer, you know, to, to my dream role or to what it, where it is that I want to end up. And yeah, I guess that's that's almost like my career journey. And I haven't really looked back. Um, as you know, majority of the work that I do, so from a corporate side, I work within talent management, and that's basically helping companies manage their talent in very simplistic terms, you know, through processes, uh, through programs, and just through different uh, interventions. And I'm also very passionate about career development, which I guess is a subset of talent management, um, as well as organizational psychology. And I think that's really where my calling uh, is in life. It's also my day job, but definitely a calling because I I just have this uh, overwhelming des not desire, so to speak, uh, to help people navigate work. And I know that many of us, you know, there's no blueprint. In fact, there isn't, you know, you, you, you yes, there's a lot of strategies, et cetera, but the majority of us, we had to learn through trial and error. So it really is my endeavor to just equip with people, especially with tools that they can easily adopt to help them, you know, navigate this jungle that is the workplace. Okay, no, I mean, that gives a good, a good summary of your professional side, but uh, let's say before university, where are you from originally? Gauteng? No, not Gauteng at all. So I'm actually uh, born in Zimbabwe. And okay. I lived, yes, I lived in uh, other parts. I lived in Cote d'Ivoire at some point, which is the Ivory Coast. Um, and then I went to an international school in South Africa. So I was very much exposed, I guess, to a very international uh, community, so to speak, uh, from a very young age. So I'm, I'm used to versatility, especially from a pan-African perspective, because from my high school and I think through my early childhood experiences, I was just always exposed to different people in parts of Africa. And I think also that helped to shape me and just to open me up, you know, to, to just different backgrounds, uh, different perspectives. Child of Africa, I like it. I like it. I've seen also that you, you've started your own business. Now, what made you start and what made you decide to start your own business instead of staying in corporate? Because, I mean, someone with a CV like yours is probably destined for senior leadership in corporate. <laughs> so talk us through that. Good question. So I must say, uh, Wes, I, I don't really think I necessarily have a fixation about the type of employment that I'm in. So whether it's freelance or you know, in full-time employment or it's self-employment, entrepreneurship, uh, et cetera, gig work, right? For me, it's about, can I do the work that I enjoy and can I make the impact that I want to make? Um, so I guess with for a season or you know, within majority of my uh, career, I've been in the corporate space. Um, before, I guess, going into full-time entrepreneurship, I did have a gap within my career where I freelanced. Uh, so I was freelancing with a lot of consulting houses. And I think that sort of gave me a, a bit of a taste in terms of the entrepreneurship world. But what made me decide? I think it was the right time. And it's something that was always in my career goals. So for many people... You know, they, they, they might have, you know, in some instances, people will think that it's something that you decided like a month before you resigned. But, you know, it, it's something that was always an intention of mine. And I also felt that, you know, it would give me carte blanche to almost, I guess, shape uh, the work that I wanted to do, the impact that I wanted to make. Uh, I do also enjoy corporate. I mean, a lot of the work that I do, even within my own business, 
is actually very similar to the work that I did in corporate, uh, except of course, you know, now I'm self-employed. So the nature of the work for me is, 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 is key in terms of actually what problems do I have the capacity to solve? And of course, the type of employment, you know, can differ. So I mean, entrepreneurship now, I can go back to, un to, so I can go back to employment, back to entrepreneurship. So for me, it's not really linear. Whereas I know there are certain people who are entrepreneurs at heart, right? Where it's like, actually, for me, the corporate place is not for me and employment is not for me. So where they have a passion for the entrepreneurship identity, as well as the work that they do. Whereas with me, I feel like I, I, I can play in both spaces, so to speak, because it's more so about uh, the work and the impact, so to speak. And of course, you know, the, the work that I do is also needed within both uh, spheres. Okay, so where you can add the most value, I like it. For the audience, if you've got any questions for Fiona, please add them to the comments now. We'll answer all of them towards the end, but uh, if you send them into late, we might miss them. So please add your questions. So Fiona, you meet and you coach many professionals. What is the biggest issue that keeps coming up or the problem that they raise the most? I must say, right, and and I'm not sure if it is, you know, this era that we're living in, but toxic workplaces, are, it's something that has become so common. Uh, and in fact, we even, I, I guess, see it as well in research in terms of the documentation, but toxic workplaces, toxic leaders, toxic environments, you know, in some instances, toxic colleagues. But that's something that a lot of people uh, come to me for help in terms of navigating. I also find, you know, just in terms of where people are at a particular crossroad. So it's a case where they need to decide on their next big step uh, or their next challenge, and they're not quite sure how to think through it or how to navigate that. Uh, so it could be a case, you know, where it could even be early career, perhaps people wanting to switch careers, or where they feel that, you know, I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing. I'm not feeling engaged, but I don't necessarily know what my next is and they just want help to think through that. Yeah, so it really, I think anything that has to do with the workplace, with navigating, with individual strategies, especially for you to deal with, you know, the, the different dynamics that we get within the workplace, that's really where my area of speciality lies. Uh, and particularly where the individual feels that they've exhausted their own resources and their own thinking and they feel that, okay, I now need you know, some sort of professional intervention to help me uh, think through this and to help me uh, chart through this path. Okay, uh, toxic workplaces, not, I, didn't, I wouldn't have thought that first time, but that, that's very interesting. So, I mean, in Absolutely. terms of the current job, in terms of the current job market, or where, or where do you see being the most available opportunities is it a specific industry? Is it a specific type of role? Uh, where, where, where is the job market going? Yeah, very good question. So I guess from a macro perspective, what, what are we seeing or what can we expect uh, in the job market? The impact of COVID has been disparate across the industries. And we know that, you know, especially for individuals. Uh, and if we look at last year around uh, level five, you know, level four, where there were very strict restrictions. And the privilege of being able to work from home is not afforded to everyone, so to speak. So the professions or the industries that we have seen, of course, struggle the most, uh, especially you know last year, and some are even still reeling, are those where the work that they were doing was not considered, um, you know, was not considered uh, what what you call it was not considered um, as part of uh, the, the primary services yes, that yes, we are allowed yes, to operate. Essential yet, services. Yes, sorry, essential services. That's the word I was looking for. So it's not, it was, they were not essential services. And it was a case where that work could only be done physically. So for 
the people that, you know, who have the privilege, and it indeed is a privilege, that had the privilege of being able to work virtually, those companies were able to operate with, of course, minimal to low disruption, especially where you have a big concentration of uh, knowledge workers, of workers that are able to do their work from home. And we, of course, you know, companies, even in instances where they were not thinking about uh, allowing or enabling people to work from home were forced to do that. So yeah, those are the careers that have unfortunately mostly, the industries that have unfortunately mostly suffered. So it, it has been disparate. And in fact, you know, it's the same impact that we saw with poor IR, right? Although I think it was happening perhaps at a little bit of, of, of a slower pace. We find that individuals who are in low and semi-skilled um, industries, women also in particular, are at most risk and at most vulnerable, particularly with these changes um, that we see occurring. Um, and especially where you cannot easily adapt, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, your skill skill or, or upskill yourself to be able, let's say, for example, to take advantage of the virtual opportunities that have opened up, um, so to speak. So it really is, is disparate. And I think for me as a job seeker, you know, what should you be doing? How do you mitigate the risk, you know, irrespective of what industry that you are in? For me, it's about employability. So what are those skills that you can gain, you know, irrespective of the industry that you're in, that are in demand. So it could be in demand in your industry because we saw that in as much as there are some industries that really took a knock, there are some professions or there are some skills that are almost recession-proof, if I can call it that. So it's an instance where even in recessions, even in economic downturns, they are still desired or they are still required. Or in some cases, they even become more important. So it's really about thinking, well, within my industry, what are those skills that almost help to hedge the impact of the risks, uh, you know, the risks that are there. And of course, more importantly, employability. So employment is a it's, a, it's a static state, so to speak. So having a job today does not mean I'm going to have a job tomorrow or a job next month. So, you know, we see that retrenchments happen and, you know, in many cases they, they've become so widespread and they're not only specific to one industry. So as a job seeker, you might think, well, you know, how do I hedge my bets? How do I ensure that I, you know, I, I keep myself secure? How do I keep myself recession-proof, so to speak? And employment, as I mentioned, is, is a static state, but employability, it's those skills that make you competitive and that allow you to navigate the market such that if you were to, you know, unfortunately lose your job today or get retrenched, you know that you have the capability or you've got those in-demand skills that are able to at least shorten your unemployment, right? So of course, you know, un, you know, the job market is very tough, I think for everyone, for most industries, uh, so to speak. But what you want to do is to ensure that you are competitively positioned so that even those few jobs that are there, you are well positioned uh, to be able to, you know, be the selected candidate. So I think employability, and it's not only about the skills, it's also your ability to self-sufficiently navigate the market. That's where actually a lot of people struggle. So you find that I have the right skills, I'm the best candidate, I'm extremely competent at my job, but can I self-sufficiently navigate the job market and what are those job-seeking behaviors that I need to adopt? So we find in many cases, you know, some people would have been at a job for 10 years and a lot of um, the clients or people that I dealt with were people that never had to look for a job for the last five to seven years because, you know, they, they were not planning on leaving their company. They were experiencing growth. And of course, you know, retrenchment and, you know, company closures, et cetera, happened literally unexpectedly for, for many people. So they now found themselves, you know, having to put together a CV and say, where do I even start? You know, the last time I was on the job market, things were so different. I think that's a skill that's going to become more important because then it builds you for resilience. And it also, it almost ensures that, you know, should the worst happen, 
at least from your side, you you know, to the best of your ability, you are well equipped to make sure that you can find your next opportunity, whether that's in full-time employment, freelancing, gig work. And I think people need to be a little bit more open now. I know that the ideal for many people is to get a full-time job, right? You know, which is not, you know, which of course is expected, you know, as it comes with the security, the benefits, etc. But we're actually finding that, you know, the world and, you know, I think even the employment uh, employment uh, type of contracts are moving a lot, you know, adopting more, more flexi workers, et cetera. And of course, that's a conversation uh, for another day. So for those in the job market, I just want you to be open-minded, especially if it is taking you significantly long. You might have to open yourself up to temporary opportunities, contract work, gig work, freelance, et cetera. There are many ways to be employed right now, you know, especially while you're waiting for that full-time employment, if it is, uh, you know, not coming through as, as you know, as, as, as easily as you would want it to. Thanks. You touched on it quite a bit in terms of skills, but uh, so in the new job market, it, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's almost better to be multi-skilled or knowing uh, a little about a lot as opposed to knowing a lot about a specific subject or a specific uh, field. Uh, and if, if, if that is the case, what, what do you think are good complementary skills for, for, for young people to develop in, uh, when they're going to the job market? Yeah, good question. So should you be a generalist, you know, like multifaceted or should you be a deep specialist? And, you know, the answer, there, there isn't, sorry, there isn't a right or wrong answer. It really all depends, you know. So there's, of course, benefits of being multi-skilled because then you're versatile for different industries. You're able to adapt, you know, for different roles. There are also benefits that come with being a deep specialist or having a niche because then it means you're one of the few people within that niche and, you know, there's benefits that come. So it really is a, a pros and cons. And I don't think that, there is any you know one right answer it's what's right for you and of course looking at other contextual factors but for young people you know you need so, so around you know what skills should i be building what makes me versatile what we see a lot and especially with new emerging jobs you know jobs literally that didn't exist two years ago you know existing today it's about transferable skills so what are those skills that i have now that i can apply to another environment and a lot of transferable skills are often, you know, soft skills, because that's what we also find um, to be something that is not easily automatable. So, you know, a lot of the technical skills can be replaced by automation, and we find, you know, that's where actually automation starts. But those soft skills are things that you can develop. So things like your complex problem solving. I, in fact, think of maybe some of the more, sorry, some of the more technical transferable skills, things, things such as, you know, project management. And I know project management looks different in different domains. But the ultimate principles of, you know, managing a project, you know, in HR, you know, yes, the context is different. Some of the nuances are different, but those are some of the skills, especially if you want to go into a new industry that, you know, employers look for leading a team, working with the team, managing people, uh, you know, it's, so there's many soft as well as, you know, certain technical skills that are transferable. And if you're trying to be versatile, that's how you're able to position or pitch yourself to an employer to say, look, I've not worked in this industry as such, but here are the three or four skills that I've been using that are definitely, uh, you know, important or that can contribute to me being successful within this particular role. And I think that's something that people need to, to do a better job at doing, especially given that we have new emergent roles that you might want to move into, but, you know, don't have a historical context in terms of working in. No, that, no, that helps a lot. Uh, Fiona, tell me, what is one piece of advice you would maybe give your younger self? So, yeah, and I think maybe speak, you know, to the point that I mentioned earlier, 
when it comes to careers and you know in fact this the world of work is now actually moving more and more towards that direction people feel that there is a linear path you know i need to start here and then this is the next step so i you know i know careers particularly in the older days you know you kind of had the linear very straightforward path in you know i i'm a ca i graduated as a ca and this is the path for a ca but what we're actually finding now right is careers are very versatile uh, so there are multiple ways to grow there you know people career switch up, for example you don't always have to stay in your job family so by job families and if i graduate as a human capital profession you know i'm going to die as a human capital profession um so to speak so i think i want one especially for young people and i would have said to myself don't put so much pressure on yourself to have it figured out and to have a great start and yes if you have a great start that's absolutely great but I can promise you, if you speak to anyone or to majority of people that are successful in their careers, you will hear there was a very bumpy road. There were detours. They spent years in maybe a job that they didn't enjoy. But ultimately, for me, it's about how do you curate each experience to, of course, lead you to where you want to be. Um, so don't put pressure on yourself to have this perfect uh, path and to have it all figured out. And especially, in fact, in my younger years, I was not, I guess, as, as aware in terms of career development as I am now. So many of the things that I did were trial and error. Um, and of course, that was for me what my learning experience was. But where you are able to get, I mean, now there is a myriad of career development resources that are available, you know, many that we didn't have during the time when I graduated many moons ago. So I would also encourage you to make use, you know, of mentors, you know, of people that are in your industry. I mean, a mentor for me has been absolutely invaluable within my career and it's never too early. In fact, I would encourage you to say as early as you can get a mentor, someone to guide you because there's always someone who has walked the journey before you that can give you the shortcuts, that can give you the insights. Many of the things that I struggled with in my earlier career could definitely have been avoided or could have at least been more smoother if I had engaged a mentor who was going to guide me through that process. I really like also what you said about uh, not worrying about figuring things out. I was telling somebody the other day, I mean, I've been working for 14 years and it's probably only like two years ago, I was like, Oh, now I'm in the now I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Now I'm in the place where I think I should be. But 10, 11 years before that, it was just like chasing or trying to figure it out. So you don't have to be, okay, now I'm qualified, so I need to know what I want. And I need these things come with time. Absolutely. I'm going to move over. Sorry, carry on, carry on. No, I said absolutely. And it's an evolving journey. So you know, if you figure it out and then for the next five years you're finding meaning in what you're doing. In five years time, you'll come to a crossroad, right? So it, it, it's like an ongoing loop. You know, before in career development, we would have this almost like age, um, you know, this almost like age line, you know, with where you should be in your career. But now it's not, you know, it's an ongoing loop where you can literally be evolving uh, as an ongoing process. So don't feel that because I've committed to this, now I must die with this uh, commitment, so to speak. And I think it really opens us up to have many opportunities where we can reinvent ourselves and pivot as many times, you know, as is, uh, you know, as is desirable for us. I'm going to move over to, to questions because there's a couple of questions coming through from the audience. Okay. Uh, we've got a question here from Khoa who says, she studied industrial psychology and I have a keen interest in organizational development, but I find it difficult, quite difficult to access opportunities. What advice can you give me to get exposure in this career path? Um, so I'm not sure if she is employed or if she is a student. Um, so I'm guessing, so if it's a case, right, and I think this applies to where you studied something, but maybe there is an area of that industry you would like to get exposure to. 
for me, one of the best ways to do it is through networking, right? So actually find out who are the professionals or who are the, whether it's, because it's not always industrial psychologists that, that do OD, although a lot of industrial psychologists are in OD. So find out who are the people that are in OD within my industry, connect with them on LinkedIn, build relationships. And that's how you are able to access those opportunities. Because once you have networking relationships, you can then, you know, get to a point where you ask for exposures, right? So let's say you're employed full time, you might say, hey, I'd really love to learn more about this field. Can you be my mentor? Can we spend, you know, um, one hour a month where you expose me in terms of, you know, the work that you do? I want to understand what you do on a day to day basis, etc. So it's really about building those relationships. Okay, so um, employed, but not in the industry. For me, build relationships and find a mentor within that industry. So find an OD practitioner or someone that is working in that field that you can build a relationship with. In fact, you, you could even explicitly ask someone that you identify to be your mentor. And through that way, they can one, expose you in terms of what does the role involve and more importantly, open up network opportunities, uh, especially if it's a case. And I find that's probably one of the best things that you can do. In some instances, if you are employed and let's say you work in another department, if there is an OD department at your place of work, go and build relationships with those people, get to know them, actually have coffee sessions, find out what they do, find out where you can help on a volunteer basis in your spare time, any documentation that they're comfortable you know, with you reviewing, looking. So get your hands dirty, so to speak, but for you to get access to that, you have to identify people that almost like let you in, uh, so to speak. That that networking advice is so important. What I also find is that uh, some people can be very focused on like corporate, like this is uh, this is what I do in corporate. They don't realize that in SMEs, it's a totally different world and your, your, your mentor might be sitting there, but because you're not seeing it like, with a big brand on the top that you, you might be missing out on a, on a totally different opportunity because you're not thinking about reaching out to people who are not at a listed company, as an example. Let's see, There's a question here. Somebody says they've got a passion to undertake studies in forensic psychology, but South Africa doesn't hold these qualifications in tertiary institutions. Do you have any advice for them? Um, so if I look at the the six categories within psychology that are, are that are recognized in terms of by the Health Professions Council in South Africa. Yes, it's true that forensic psychology is, I, I do, I, I'm not sure though, you know, in, in terms of it's not offered at anywhere because I, I sort of do feel at one or two instances, I've met people who have studied it. Uh, but I guess, you know, it, it's not a profession, you know, um, that, uh, you know, you can register as a Health Professions Council, so to speak. So in that regard, maybe it's a case of exploring, um, in terms of you know what is the problem you want to solve so is it that you want to solve psychological problems uh, of a forensic nature and in fact you might actually be surprised because in an instance where you feel a profession is underrepresented go on to linkedin and actually try and google forensic psychology and what i often find right and this is a neat trick it will pull up of course you know people that have that in their title somewhere um and if you find that you know there are some of them that are here based in South Africa, reach out to them. So I'll give you an example. Although organizational psychology is, of course, uh, you know, it's, it's a profession that is known in South Africa. At that time, I didn't really have much networks of people working in the field. So what I did is I went on LinkedIn, I Googled organizational um, psychologist, and, you know, it pulled up all the organizational psychologists that I guess that were there in LinkedIn. And what I did is I went and I looked at the companies that they were working at, because as you mentioned, people only know the big brand companies, you know, the big, uh, right? But I was like, actually, they all can't work at the big companies. Where else am I missing? And when I went through their history, I could also see that, okay, so they've worked at this company, then I would go and research the company. So I think for me, 
try and see if there are any South African-based people with forensic psychology in their bio and have a conversation in terms of what exactly does this field or profession look like in the country? Is it well-developed? What are my options? Because it could be a case where there might be people that are actually practicing it or doing it, but maybe they've qualified somewhere. But I think finding out from someone that is working within that uh, professional, within uh, that industry, so to speak, might be useful. Although there might not be a lot of them, I, I'm pretty sure that there is a few that you will be able to find and connect with. And also, if I could add, you can also start, if you don't find the, that type of content anyway, you can start talking about that on LinkedIn. You can start being that person on LinkedIn. If you are known as being that person, people will come to you. So that's also an option that you could potentially use. Absolutely. We've got a question from Sisonke. What would you consider to be self-sufficient behaviors? Touching on your answer from earlier. Yeah. So in terms of being able to navigate self-sufficiently uh, in the job market, what that means is when it comes to your job search, so this is putting a CV together, you know, having the different job search strategies, because people usually know the one way to look for a job, which is I wait for a vacancy and then I respond. But there's actually a whole host of other ways to look for a job, you know, which are, are lesser known. Uh, but more importantly, what are those tactics? So by self-sufficient uh, behaviors or by effective job-seeking behaviors, it means you're using the right strategies, you are well-positioned, you have a good CV, you have good interview skills. So when you go into the job market, you are confident that from my side and my ability and my skills to look for work, to network as a job seeker, you know, to, to basically use my networks and my contacts, you know, as part of my job search, those skills, you know, are to the best of my ability and I'm doing the right thing. I often find when I coach people, when I do workshops around job seeking, many people will be like, you know what, I feel more confident now. Because often it's like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Um, so that, because, you know, one thing that people need to remember when it comes to your job search, there are certain things that are in your control and there are certain things out of your control. You cannot control the amount of jobs uh, that are out there on the market. You can't control if a position is put on hold after you apply or whatever happens, right? But you certainly can control how well you're positioned so that you know that on my side, in terms of the number of times I'm looking for a job, how my CV looks, how I'm positioning myself in interviews, how I'm networking, the things I'm saying to when I reach out to recruiters and people in their DMs, all those things are effective and they're basically you know, uh, good contributors towards me looking for a job. Uh, so that's what I meant by self-sufficient behaviors because in many cases, I find that people who are not navigating the job market effectively, one, I either have an over-reliance on one job search method, they're not doing the right things, also the job search intensity, you can't apply for one job every six weeks and say, why am I not getting a job? There has to be the right job search intensity in terms of frequency of activities, et cetera. So it's really about that entire plan coming together. So that's what it means. And then you are also confident. So you go into that interview, you know, you go into those networking situations confident that I am equipped to do the right things to, of course, increase my opportunities at landing a job. Okay, thanks. That's a great answer. I don't, I don't want to, I'm going to cut it there in terms of questions. Otherwise, I'll be keeping you the whole, yeah. the whole afternoon. <laughs> Are there any last few words from you or anything that we didn't discuss that you'd like the audience to know? I think just my parting words, right? And this is more for job seekers. I know they're not the only population that are watching here, but uh, you know, I know that it is probably a very desperate situation right now for many job seekers. And for many of us, you know, especially those on the job market, for those, it takes an emotional toll. 
you know, it is mentally exhausting. It is mentally depleting. We have a huge amount of what is called discouraged job seekers. These are people who have given up. So for job seekers, what I want to say is, especially because the job market is tough and maybe you might find yourself in the market a little bit longer than you expect, it is important to take care of yourself and ensure that you take a step away from your job search, whether it's for a week or two days or three days or whatever, to replenish your energy. Because you have to build yourself for resilience. And it is important because the only way to get out of an unemployment situation is to remain on the job market. And what happens is many will then become at risk of becoming despondent that they stop looking, right? And of course, that has other effects. So I want you to know that it is okay to take breaks, you know, for a week, for however long it is, because you find that in replenishing your energy and focusing on other things outside of the job search is going to help to build you for the long term, because the journey, unfortunately, for many job seekers within this season that we are in uh, is long. And I think for me, that's really just the word of encouragement that I want to give them, uh, you know, during this time looking after your, your your mental health is very very important a reminder to everyone that the show is live on youtube and will be available on podcast by tomorrow morning if you're watching on youtube or listening on the podcast and you feel that this has added value to you don't forget to like and subscribe and click the notification bell so that you get automatically notified when the next episode comes out fiona thank you so much for your time thank you for having me thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of two ways to skin a cat goodbye